1: Nordic Crimes is a part of the ACAST family. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times.
2: So, to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a
3: thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So,
2: give it a try at slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: We all have to hang up and get on our beds.
1: Amelia Carr is behind bars now and she'll die behind bars, just sentenced to death for kidnapping and murder.
2: out in the very first interview with Detective Bowie walking in and telling me, you want to see that baby born, don't you? You know
3: something? This is the time, this is our opportunity, because you want to see that baby being born. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining, My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part four of my chat with Amelia Carr, the woman serving two life sentences for the kidnap and murder of Heather Strong, a crime she has always maintained she's innocent of. Now, if you're yet to hear the other three parts, it's time to hit that pause button, head on back and catch up. Now, when I say this is part four... It's not a complete part four. So when I released this podcast at the very beginning, I said that there may come a time when the prison system got in the way of an episode. And, well, here we are. Now, I'm going to explain fully in a moment. But first, Amelia called me just the other week. We hadn't spoken in quite a while. And I'll be honest, at one point, I thought we might not speak again, as I thought she may have decided she no longer wanted to share her story with me. However, when she called through unexpectedly one morning, she was audibly exhausted and frustrated. Now, the idea of this show is to give these men and women a voice. But I don't want to just give them a voice to be able to sit there and tell their stories of crime and misfortune and say, well, thanks very much, have a good life. I also want to get a picture of what it's like inside these places day to day. So sometimes, when they call, I just let them vent. Because no matter whether you're incarcerated or not, everyone just needs to vent once in a while. And this particular day, Amelia wanted to do just that. Her and the other women were tired due to lack of sleep because of some of the actions of other inmates, but more so, some officers.
2: This is the problem. They, they do not view us as human beings. They view us as inmates. They view us as less than. Um, and so they treat us as though, oh, well, well, you guys are in here. This is what you're going to do. And like I was explaining to someone, we have maintenance workers. So these people sometimes deal with electricity. They don't sleep at night, and they're supposed to deal with electricity. And what happens if they get electrocuted? Oh, well, that's just an inmate. You replace them. It's it's horrific the type of lack of humanity that exists here. And when you say anything about it, there's retaliation. There's always retaliation. Even though they say they don't, they do. And there's mass punishment for yeah. the acts of individual people. So it's just, it takes its toll. And we've been going through this for so long. It's just day in and day out. It's something. And it just... It makes you not even want to be a part of the incentivized program because the incentivized program is supposed to be for the inmates that have proven that they can behave better than the compound. They, I mean, like none of us have had DRs. We are not disrespectful. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's people that still are problematic, but instead of getting rid of them, they just punish everybody as a whole. Yeah. And then they just threaten you with the program. It's, it's a lot. I'm exhausted mentally and I'm exhausted physically because there's no adequate rest. So then when you tell them, (laughs) because, you know, I've I've been a law clerk for years, and I just have these other jobs. So under Mm -hmm. the Eighth Amendment, lack of sleep is a form of torture. They use it, you know, in a lot of places across the world as a form of torture. So psychologically, by keeping us in a heightened state of anxiety and fear, and then denying us sleep, and then every time we fight for something, there's a backlash, you're continuously beating people down. This is what we've been going through for weeks.
3: Amelia also gave me some news about Kim, who regular listeners will know from our previous episodes. Kimberly Boone, the prison law clerk, a mother of two who was serving over 30 years for arson and attempted murder. Kim has recently had some bad news from home. And
2: then Kim just lost her mom, so I've been trying to be oh, here for her. No. Yeah, she lost her mom Tuesday,
3: and it was, oh, it was horrible so because
2: last night, I know I lost my mom in April of yeah. this last year, and it's a hard place to lose someone who means the world to you. So a young lady, was just just gently put her hand on her shoulder and said, "I'm sorry." And the officer, literally, told her, "I could take you to jail for that." We're human beings, and the the human needs comfort, needs touch, regardless of what we're here for. We're still human beings. Are you not allowed, allowed to, to touch each other? Someone can't. No, because they say that everything. Is inappropriate touching. Well, somebody losing their mom and you giving them a hug or touching them on the shoulder to show your sympathy is not inappropriate, but according to them it is. But this is our existence. This is our existence. You go through something and you're threatened. If someone shows you compassion, you know, let, let me take you to confinement. So you're penalized for maintaining your humanity in an inhumane environment.
3: Now, I have no doubt there is a lot of people who will be sitting there listening to this saying, boo-hoo, you're in prison, it's not supposed to be a holiday camp. But as Amelia and many of the other men and women have told me, they don't expect that. In fact, they want to work, they want to learn, and they want to better themselves. But unfortunately, in some of these facilities, they're just not afforded the rights of normal human beings. I know we
2: haven't really spoken much about the Department of Corrections, and it's, from my understanding, it's not like this everywhere, so you can't use that as a blanket. But this particular institution, if you've done any research, has a horrific reputation regarding female inmates, and yet it continues. They claim that the Department of Justice says one investigation after another, yet there's no long term results. There's nothing. I mean, a young lady was paralyzed from the neck down a couple years back, and when her family filed suit, the and they tried to press charges. The investigation was unfounded. So these people paralyze someone from the neck down, and there's no charges pressed. Nobody's held accountable. But in here, if one of us in the free world, let's just say somebody out in the free world who's not incarcerated paralyzes someone from the neck down, they're going to prison. Mm-hmm. So what is it about the uniform that makes you above the law? All that's required to work here is a high school diploma or a GED. So a GED means that when you come here and you get this job, you can psychologically, emotionally, and physically abuse citizens because a lot of these women are going right back out into society. Beat them down, tear them down, abuse them, terrorize them, and you get paid for it. If anybody was to do that in the free world, they'd be in here. So where does the line get so blurred that inmate and authority, just there's no... It's just, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. And this is what we deal with day in and day out. It takes its toll. But the sad part is, Jack, that there's so much potential. Like, this is supposed to be rehabilitation.
3: But it's not, it's not rehabilitation at all.
2: (laughs) It's not. And yet, and yet it's glorified by shows like Orange is the New Black. Yeah. They glorify prison. So people think it's this, it's this place where you can come and do this thing. and it is not at least not where we are this is not some grand party this is real life where you see these things women die here all the time and nothing is done about it nothing is said about it it just oh well i don't know how many investigations we've had on our medical now don't get me wrong we do have some really really good officers we've had some guardian angels here. really step in and shine but they're few and far in between yeah potential for so much you have doctors in here you have psychologists these (coughs) women had careers they could do so much and yet they're just sitting here doing nothing because there's nothing to do
3: so at this point amelia and i are still chatting backward and forward uh and all of a sudden something happens in the background at the prison.
2: They just called Emergency Master Roster Count. Oh, okay. I'm not sure why. Sure. But we all have to hang
3: up and get on with our bed. Okay. I'll try to call you around 4.30 or 5, okay? Okay, no worries. All I'll talk right. to you all then. Right. Okay, bye. Now, since that moment, Amelia and I have been unable to get back on the phone with each other for us to finish her story. So here's where we're at. I could finish that story and bring you everything I know. But that's just not what this show is about. It's about the men and women telling their own stories, not a journalist. So we're going to have to park this story for now, but we will finish it as soon as we can. But with Amelia's story does come the incredibly fascinating topic of false confessions. False confessions are something that I think a lot of people still don't truly understand. I mean, why would anyone in their right mind confess to a crime they didn't do or give details in order to put themselves at a crime they weren't at, something that can incriminate them, give them a life sentence, in some cases, a death sentence. It's an extremely fascinating topic and one that I wanted to explore further. So I got the help of an expert.
0: My name is Rob Robertson. I've been an attorney in the the Chicago area, uh, United States, for over 30 years, the first half of my career. I was a prosecutor with the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, which was the I think it's the either the largest or the second largest consolidated prosecutor's office in the nation. I handled everything up to including murder cases, number of murder cases, including uh, at the time, death penalty cases. Uh, I left the office and in the last 15 years, I've been handling the flip side of things. I do criminal defense and civil rights. So the other half of the coin, and I've represented in that capacity the number of people charged with offences up to and including murders.
3: Rob is a man who's had an incredible career and has a vast knowledge of this particular topic. I find it a fascinating subject, um, and I think it's it's still one that people probably don't understand truly.
2: I think I most agree with
3: I think most people would just are of the opinion an innocent person would never admit to a crime they didn't do, but it's obviously been proven time and time again now that. They will under certain circumstances. Um, Oh, yeah. So, I mean, what's your experience with wrongful confessions?
0: You know, I I think it's it's uh, uh, I think you summed it up very nicely, Jack, that I think the majority of society doesn't believe that false confessions occur. Hmm. Uh, And it's based on the um, simple proposition that, hey, no one would ever confess to someone they didn't do as a prosecutor or as a defense attorney. You always had to examine whole aspects of the confession, the circumstances under which it was made, who was making it, why they were making it, and you wanted to look at that confession with a critical eye. You just didn't want to take it and run with it. Even mm-hmm. as a prosecutor, as a defense attorney, you want to attack it in many different ways. Um, there are individuals, there are certain things about an individual's own makeup which may make them more inclined to confess. Uh, you have some people who who may, uh, may suffer from some type of... Uh, psychological or psychiatric disorders that make them kind of compelled to confess. You have people who have been coerced into confessing in some instances. What I don't think people understand is you can have a coercive environment that naturally kind of occurs in the police setting. You have someone who you've kept in a small room, possibly for a couple days. You're their only contact, or the police officers you only contact with them, talking to them. uh, They may be stressed, limited sleep, uh, exhaustion first time it's ever occurred to them and that could cause them not to to think properly mm. uh, and they may may start saying things that, that they don't believe that that absolutely didn't happen so that's why it's important to look at these things critically.
3: Over the course of the journey of doing this show I've watched a lot of, um, interrogations. And, um, I mean, look, I mean, inter- I mean, I don't think we can call them interrogations, interviews. Um, but they are, some of them are interrogations. I mean, they're really intense. Like, I mean, you've got detectives that are in some cases almost sitting in the person's lap, like, you know, really in their face going, you know, tell me what happened. And, and also what I found incredible is that, um, in, in the states they're allowed to I mean I don't know if it's if everywhere else it's just I'm looking at the states so the, this is why I know this from there the detectives are allowed to to lie to the the person they're talking to in order to help them get that confessional to get more information
0: yeah that's something that um, you know it's kind of funny because uh, as a prosecutor we would do a um, a tour through what was called the felony review unit where we would actually go in and talk to suspects and um uh, talk to them about what potentially happened and see if they would confess to us. But um, while the police officers could lie to them under law, I mean it was going to go up to the United States Supreme Court. I think maybe last year,
3: mm-hmm.
0: we as prosecutors, as lawyers, officers of the courts, could never lie to a to right. a suspect. Okay, we would have to, if someone would say like would ask you a question, you 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 have to be honest with them, right. flat out, and say like. No, that's not the case. You know, with the Miranda warnings, you also have to tell them, hey, you know, you don't, um, you know, you you know, the whole bit, you know, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you have to make sure they understood that. And that's Mm -hmm. particularly important with juveniles Mm -hmm. and people who may be a little bit slow because, you know, I've had I've had people, quote unquote, confess to me. And, you know, as you as you talk through it, they're not really confessing. They may be like nodding, kind of repeating things back or mm. just maybe saying what they've said. you got to kind of look at it critically, kind of get underneath the underbelly. You also have some people, I, I've had some people who just get, who are just tired of the whole process and say, yeah, I did it. I did it. Yeah, I did just to it. Just get it over with. And, yeah. and, right. And you, instead of taking that and running with it and saying, ha ha, I got a confession. Hey, listen, you don't want to be saying that if you didn't do this, you know, mm. you want to, you have to explain that to people. Uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the rooms are built small um and you know if you get one or two officers in there that's definitely uh going to keep it crowded even in even in the best intentioned um scenarios but i mean we have a um uh, i'm sure like your country we have a lot of wide variances within the country of, of what is commonly accepted police practice from yeah. east coast to west coast north to south mm. so we here in uh in the chicago area suffered through a period in the 80s and 90s with a uh, police uh, commander by the name of John Burge, who was uh, wound up becoming notorious for torturing suspects and getting confessions out of them. Wow. Um, and uh, there has been a number of multimillion-dollar lawsuits after people have spent, you know, 20, 30 years in jail on these false confessions.
1: According to the indictment,
0: former Commander Burge, while working in Area 2 as a detective, later a sergeant, and then a
1: lieutenant, participated in and witnessed the abuse of people in police custody.
0: Sean Tyler and his brother Reginald Henderson have been out of prison for three years now. Both spent the better part of their lives in prison, serving about a quarter of a century for a crime they had nothing to do with. They say they were tortured into confessions for murder by officers trained by former police commander John Burge.
1: Chicago City Council just signed off on a big settlement for two men who filed wrongful conviction suits. It's just the latest payout for police misconduct tied to disgraced commander John Burge
3: and the officers under him.
0: Uh, And I mean, these were done by um, by sworn police officers. Uh, So in the wake of that, acting as a as a prosecutor living in that environment you have to be extra extra careful you know and make sure that you know everything was up in the, on the up and up mm-hmm. because some some people actually do confess you know yeah um, of
3: course yeah
0: some, some people tell you hey i did it mm-hmm. and some people will say i did it and then afterwards we'll want to take it back mm-hmm. but you know eliminating false confessions i think it's it's been great that there's been so much work that has exposed not only like the what I would say are the coerced heart confessions, where, where it's just done through physical abuse or, you know, threats against uh, the person, or more likely others. Yeah, you know, they the have been ones instances and where, stuff. yes, like your kids are going to get taken away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're going to put this case on your wife. You know, those are situations that it's not physical coercion, but sitting in a room and someone's telling you this, and you're scared for your loved ones. You know, you
3: It's interesting. I'm talking to a lady at the moment who, I mean, we won't, it's, it's too hard to, I think, to, to try and sit here and, and work out whether or not, you know, she did give a false confession, but it, it was that situation. She, you know, she had, uh, she was this gentleman that she was um, dating. I don't know if you've heard of Amelia Carr, um, but she's a lady in Florida with her, a guy called Joshua Fulgham. Um, essentially, um, his his wife ends up being murdered. He uh, admits to the crime. She says that detectives off camera were feeding her information about the crime itself and saying look we want to put this guy away you know you want to go home to your kids don't you you know you've got four children also at the time she's eight months pregnant so she's got a baby on the way and i mean the first thing the detective said to her when she sat down this was before they even knew where the, the lady was or that she'd been killed at all the first thing he said was you know first, literally the first thing out of his mouth was you want to see that baby born don't you you know you need to help me i appreciate you coming up here how far along are you i'm eight months eight months yeah okay try to get some things together we try to sort out some some differences and get a clear understanding
2: oh, i'm hoping you guys find her i mean well we, we're, we're gonna find her find
3: her with your help i mean it'd be with your help we're gonna find yeah. her okay because i need you to understand that i need Anna, your help
2: and i'm here to help i mean we've got kids who need both parents and you and, know
3: something this is the time this is our opportunity because you want to see that baby being born. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Okay, yeah. you know, you don't want something to bite you in the behind. For a, for a detective, to the first thing out of his mouth to say that to a pregnant lady is a bit full on. Oh, it's more than full on. I
0: mean, personally, what I've always, I always think that you get credible confessions, and that's what you want, by actually talking to people like they're people, mm. not threatening them, but yeah. just like, tell me what happened, you know, and just talking to about it pointing out inconsistencies in their story, like, hey, you told me this, you told me this, you told me this, which, I mean, how do you reconcile that? Yeah. And at some point after they run through this all the stories, they'll feel like, I can't keep lying like this. And there's, there is there is a natural compulsion to want to tell someone what you've done, to want to come clean. I mean, there's a lot of good in people, and, they, and they've been taught from a young age, in most instances, the police are good and they want to tell them something.
2: Stay my man. In the baby. A lot of shit
0: couldn't work. It's gonna be a long, hard road, you know that oh I know, I know, and I want to pay for it. I've I, I gotta pay for it. But in terms of that type of repugnant behavior, that should have no place anywhere. And it's still you could as you've learned um, as you go through the States, it still happens. I think primarily because we have a lot of police officers out there who are still, you know. The thirty-year veterans are still operating on the way things were, the yeah. way things are. I think recording is great. I wish every time I talked to someone, it was recorded. Yeah. It would have been, it would have been great because you get word for word, you get reactions. You, there's none of this like, oh, he said this, he said this. No, just listen to what I said, you know. And, and I think that the more we've gone into that realm, the better it's been.
3: She said to me that multiple conversations happened in other rooms off the record, so there's no way of corroborating what she's saying, whether this conversations did happen. I've noticed within the recorded conversations she mentions things that would make me think that what she's saying is true. Like at one point she says, I was thinking about what you told me in the other room about my mum's trailer. And then she kept saying to them for some reason, she would say, is this on the record? And they're like, yes, this is on the record. So it's like, why is she asking that question if, this is, if, if they're not being had off the record?
0: Those are great points. And I think that that's certainly something there. Like mm-hmm. what we have here now is it's recording the entire time someone's in a room yeah so you get you get hours and hours of recordings of people of people sleeping just sitting there yeah, yeah. Um, just sitting there so mm. when they're taken out to the bathroom you see exactly how long they've been taken you see who takes them mm-hmm. um they're off camera at that point but but i think that's that would be a preferred way and, you know with the with the way videos are stored nowadays there's no reason why you can't you know take them um, take that amount of digital footage and just keep it at least for the life of the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that might might solve it, um, or at least not solve it, but at least help. You're always going to have that claim, though, that, you know, if if an officer wants to do something that's um, coercive or illegal and he knows his, his or her um, interrogation is going to be taped, then it's always just like on the way to the station, you know. Mm. They'll do the, you know, the ride. Let's take a couple tours around the yeah, block. Yeah, a few extra blocks, that, yeah. Exactly. And then you could always do that if you wanted to. The other thing I think that's very helpful besides recording is when you have more than just one or two people working a case, because I think when you can isolate the universe of knowledge of the misconduct to a small group of people, you have a better chance of like a conspiracy occurring or a smaller Mm -hmm. or people willing to take that extra step. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you have more people involved, you're much more likely to have one person just stand up and say, See, this isn't Hey, right. yeah.
3: this
0: is not right. Mm-hmm.
3: I find as well, a lot of these, you know, interviews that I watch, in fact, I mean, most of the ones that I've watched, there is a, an incredible amount of times when these people don't have legal representation of any form. Now I know they've read their Miranda rights and they're told, you know, if, if you like someone here with you, then that's fine. But, I just find it odd, literally, all I mean, everyone that I'm speaking to where I'm able to watch their interviews, every single one of them have not got legal representation, not one of them.
0: It's kind of a self-fulfilling aspect because it's very rare for an attorney actually to let someone talk. Mm. So it's a product of you're getting to see these without anyone having legal representation because if an attorney is called on their behalf, the first thing you do, like if I if it was 1 o'clock in the morning and a client called me and said, hey, I'm being I'm being held down here for murder, I'd get out of bed. I'd go down to the police station, and I'd lawyer him up. Mm. i tell the detectives, hey, listen, this is my client. He's not going to speak to you. Mm. You know, Mr. Client, please tell the detective. You're not going to speak to him without me, okay? And at that point in time, if anything happens after that, there's many more hurdles that they have to clear to show that, you know, they – that uh, my client intentionally waived their rights. But I will say this, um, I tried a case where I was the trial attorney, not the person who took the uh, the confession. Rare instance where on a videotaped confession, an attorney actually sat in with his client while he was confessing to murder. And yeah, and the, uh, the challenge, they made a motion, the defense made a motion prior to trial to challenge the confession based on ineffective assistance of counsel that that attorney never should have let that person confess. So we had to litigate that motion. It was it was uh, heavily litigated. We, we wound up prevailing. But it was it was fascinating to see.
3: I watched another case, Christopher Tapp, his name is, um, he confessed to a, a, a brutal murder that he didn't do. He was hooked up to a, a polygraph, and they did a polygraph, and they told him, that he'd failed the polygraph test. Like, they're asking his questions, he's telling them I wasn't there, or, you know, giving them all the answers that he didn't do it. And he's like, and he said, how did I do? And they're like, it's showing that you're lying.
0: How'd I do on that one? Sure, show a heart reaction. Was Read you your Christopher
1: Tapp was arrested in 1997 for the rape and murder of Idaho Falls teenager Angie Dodge. He was eventually released from prison in 2017.
3: How does it feel to not have handcuffs on? Different. 20 years of living like that. This is
1: it, Chris? First time you're still that Do free Yes.
0: Freedom.
3: Yeah. Woo! Thank you everybody. It's right like on. how is that? How is that? Oh, it's I know. Insanity. It's insanity.
0: The polygraphs are, you know, they're not admissible in court generally, but they, they, some people try to backdoor them in under the guise of, well, they, they just explain the circumstance of the confession. But they're really designed to, in many instances, the operators just cause additional stress in the person. <laughs> um, I actually watched a videotape of a polygraph that went on for like 40 minutes. And the first, and they're only asking 10 questions during the whole time. Mm. And, you know, adjust your chair, speak up. You know, stand, sit straighter. And the guy was almost like it was some kind of bad game of Simon Says. At the end of it, and we actually tried this case because our client was in prison for two years and civilly we tried it. And he wound up getting over a million dollars for being in, in prison for those two years. They said he failed the polygraph and they kept telling him, you failed the polygraph. Deception is indicated. They couldn't say on what questions he didn't answer correctly. They couldn't say on what he answered, what deception was indicated, nothing. Um, It was a complete joke. Uh, I mean, I I, I think that some people will make true and valid confessions when faced with a polygraph. Mm. Sometimes before the polygraph even starts, they built it up in such their mind that, you know, this is is such a... um, tremendously accurate device, I, 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 ha- I have to just say what I did before they tell me I'm lying. But in most cases, in, in a number of cases, I should say, with, uh, with a polygraph, it's just, if, if they take it, they're told, you know, deception is indicated. I don't know if I've ever seen a polygraph given in a criminal setting where the person uh, passed with no deception indicated. The, the best I've seen is uh, inconclusive. Yeah, and, and even that inconclusive, they'll turn that around saying like, well, inconclusive means it didn't show that you were telling the truth. You mm. must've been lying about something. So I don't, I don't put, I don't put any stock into polygraphs.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think if Perfect. I was hooked up to one now, I'd suddenly be, I'd be stressed <laughs> instantly. Yeah.
0: Especially if you were facing a murder charge oh. and you were in the, in the, in the, in a cell or in a small room with other people asking you questions and you're like, basically the rest of my life is going to depend on whether this machine says I'm accurate or not. I mean, that screams stress.
3: A lot of the, a um, lot of the time I've I've seen with these you know false confessions. You've got you've got these people that say, well, I, they were so tired and, and so over it that they did just confess and they thought, you know what, I did actually didn't do this. So truth will prevail and, and the truth will come out and it'll be fine. I'm just going to say what they want me to say now to get this done because I've been here for three days or whatever it is. They've been questioning me for twenty hours nonstop. So they're like, you know what, I'm just, yes, I, yep whatever you say, this is how, and then, and then truth doesn't prevail and they end up getting life sentences and spend 20-odd years in prison. I just, and when I watch these taped interviews, the ones that have been presented in court, I look at them and go, how, how can anyone, this guy started off saying, no, had nothing to do with this, and eventually after, you know, you watch him and then you see they start hunching over and they're holding their heads, they're visibly stressed and tired, but yet they're still convicted. I just, it blows my mind.
0: I agree with you hundred percent. I think that's where you ne- really need to be careful when someone is wearing down, whether it's a product of their conscience getting to them or if it's just a product of the of the environment that does it sometimes that's hard to hard to tell. I think that the the biggest thing besides the video recording, which I think should capture all that is that it's important we have a we have a law here um similar to the law of corpus delecti which is which is that um you have to have some corroboration to a confession, so that's some in some cases that'll help where you have to have some evidence besides the confession yeah, yeah, to yeah. show that the confession is accurate that's not <laughs> It's not that much, but that sometimes i think can can sometimes you know help keep people being convicted from solely from false confessions but i mean it's it's not enough but i I understand your concern and I share it as well. <laughs>
3: And the other thing is that I've noticed a lot of the time is there's this term used whenever these sort of sort of you know horrendous crimes happen. You know you hear this all the time. There was an extreme amount of pressure to get a result. There was a lot of pressure to get a result on this one. So part of me wonders whether this pressure that comes obviously from the top. You know people are like this has got to, you know we need an answer. You know the public. Oh you know there's a lunatic running around. So there's this pressure on these detectives. We've we've got to get this solved. So you almost wonder if it's a case of well look guys. A lot of this isn't adding up, but this person, we've got a few little things. They they were in the area. They've got a record, you know. Um, there's a gentleman's case I was looking at the other day. He happened to have a record and he lived in the house next door. They kind of went, you know what? He was released from prison only a couple of weeks ago. This crime has happened next door, you know. So they've kind of found this guy and go, you know what? Let's try and fit the evidence around this gentleman because he's the best thing we've got at the moment. Now, I know there's a lot of good detectives that don't do that, but it seems that there's still a number that go, well, let's just get this result.
0: You know, I think it's it's one of the things that's hardest, you know, doing the civil rights stuff is when you're suing police officers for actions they've taken against, against your client. Mm. And it's very difficult work to do because the police officers uh, come with the um, flag draped around them or mm-hmm. with, you know, the shield of honor, sworn law enforcement officers. They're the people we call to protect us. Um, and that the The bad apples in there wind up um, using all the all the goodwill built up by all the good officers to protect themselves. yeah but police officers are human, and I think people forget that humans lie, humans do things they shouldn't do in, in terms of pressure I, I I think what's scarier than I think it's rare for a police officer to fit someone up for a crime who they don't think did it. I don't think they'll they'll do that. But what's scary is when you have someone who truly believes that this could be the person and they talk themselves into it mm. and then they get that laser focus, then it's a question of, well, I know I got the right guy. I just don't have the evidence. Yeah, And then what's your next step? Mm. Then you may be willing to push a little harder in the confession. You may be willing to bend the law here or there to recover certain evidence. You may even go so, so far as to go to a, a person that you know may not, may be a member of an opposing gang or someone who has it in for the guy you're looking at, see what they'll say about him, knowing that that may not be a credible source. It's like the, the people who really think like they're all-knowing and that they, they've got the right guy. That can be kind of scary. That's definitely a concern. And I think that the other thing that there is pressure to get the right person, but I think what I've seen more of the concern is that there are some officers out there, uh, again, we're talking about a few that it's not that they're acting out of pressure, but with the pressure comes great reward, uh, commendation, acclaim, yeah, of course. A consideration What's... of promotion. Mm-hmm. I caught this man. And I think that could be just like with a lot of people that could be a motivating force for them. Mm. Um, again, I don't, I don't think it would necessarily be like enough to like fit someone up for a crime they didn't believe the guy did, but it would certainly be enough to kind of help along the slanted investigatory process towards someone that they they thought may have done it.
3: I mean, the, the gentleman I was talking to just prior to us chatting, um, his name's Evaristo Salas, He, a um, 15-year-old who was convicted of a murder. Uh, and he had that situation where the arresting officer was, I think, Pretty sure, like, he was, he had a history with this guy. Like, he wasn't a, he wasn't like a, a, you know, a squeaky clean kid. You know, he was part of a gang. He was doing stupid things as as kids do, um, vandalism, all that sort of stuff. And this murder happened, and and he had some history with his kids. So, first thing he did was knock on his door, say, All right, I want you into questioning. And there was no evidence to fit him to to be at this crime. But I think he was so adamant that this kid had done it.
2: Look, I'm telling you right now, I had nothing to do with this. And at first, I'm thinking they're just, Making up stuff because you know that's what they did. They always stashed me up, took me to the police station and interrogated me the same exact way. And it was always those two officers or another two, so it was almost routine. I was like, "Come on, man!" I mean, I, t- I told Rivard, "I said you know me my entire freaking life." I told him, "Look, I did not have anything to do with this. I don't know who's saying what, but I'm telling you that right now." And I'm already in tears because this is freaking me out because I can see by his demeanor he's not playing. You know what I mean? And uh, he just didn't didn't even care. He just looked at me and he goes, "You didn't think we're ever going to catch you, huh?"
3: It was proven that he found, he got an informant that he knew to lie. This poor guy's still in prison. The informant came out and said he made me lie.
0: The informant situation is one of the quieter, dirtier areas uh, where misconduct can occur, mm. um, because it it's it's twofold. One, for if you had a true informant, someone who was reliable, who was involved in the criminal milieu, um, you'd want to protect that individual, and you wouldn't want to. Um, uh, let everyone know he was your informant. So the law protects the secrecy of informants. You know, they, it's a big thing to get uh, an officer to turn over exactly who the informant is. Yeah, of course. On the flip side, that's when you have no, when you have a much less of a chance for your informant to be revealed. You know, the idea that you can you can say a lot of things. Oh, Jack told me this. You know, oh, my informant told me this. Mm. And all of a sudden you're kind of uh, filling in the back the backstory for what you want for probable cause or reasonable suspicion where you can go out and start um, building an investigation against someone who you have a predisposition to believe did it. Hmm. And again, and again, I think that you know, good police officers, bad police officers, they see a crime and if, if they've had experience with someone, sometimes someone will pop into their head and then it's, if they don't challenge it, if they have that tunnel vision, it's just, it creates the recipe for for a potential disaster could ruin someone's life.
3: Yeah. And hey, look, it's, it's incredible. And I, and I know we have to obviously remember the fact that there are a lot of good detectives out there. There are a lot of great police officers out there that don't do the wrong thing, that, that do look for the, you know, the right person and that sort of stuff, you know, there, and there's, you know, there's, there's, I don't want to say bad apples, but you know, there, there's, there's bad in, in all professions. Um, so, you know, these are just a few cases that we're talking about. Unfortunately, I think a few is still too many, especially when you're putting oh, yeah. innocent people in in jail for, you know, in their entire lives. I mean, people have been executed who who were innocent. Um, you know, so it's it is an honestly it is a fascinating topic, and it's one that I, I truly um, I, I find very interesting and one I want to learn a lot more about, especially that investigation side of things and and how that's handled. So um, I, I really appreciate your time. Um, it's been amazing. Cool. Um, I would love to have you back on again at some point if if you were if you're up for that absolutely, um, because I've got a lot of stories coming up with a lot of different um, inmates. There's actually one coming up very soon where he admitted to the crime because he he thought he did it, um, he legitimately thought he did it, but then the what he was telling them happened. They're like, oh, hold on, that. Doesn't really add up. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know, we need to change this slightly because you, you're giving us a confession, which is great. You really think you did it, which is also great, but you're not quite giving us what actually happened. So it's just, it's incredible. It's oh, mind man. blowing. It's mind blowing.
0: You know, sometimes, sometimes you have that, and I'd love to come back. Sometimes you have that with a guy. I've seen it happen with a guy who did a series of robberies. Mm. And he was actually confessing to one robbery where he thought he had wound up with an old elderly man dying where he thought that he had um, killed the man. But what he was talking about was a completely different incident where he had injured the man, but the man had lived. But he thought- The man um, had died. That's the one he, he killed him. And, and and then it was just like, and that was just like everyone, everyone there was like totally above board. They just, they just didn't catch it until later.
3: I've got to say a massive thank you to Rob for coming on and chatting with us about this incredibly fascinating topic, and we will definitely have Rob back on the show very soon. So what's next? Well, next week, we'll start the story of Anthony Duke.
2: My name's Anthony Duke. I was convicted of second-degree murder and felony murder, two separate charges, uh, first degree home invasion, larceny in a building, felony possession of a firearm, and five felony firearms, one for each one of the charges I was just mentioned.
3: A man who has certainly never confessed to the crime he's been convicted of. In fact, upon his sentencing, he stood and looked the victim's families dead in the eyes and told them he was innocent. Steve, Ken, and Mike I'm innocent. I was and still is the only man that I've ever respected. Tony was convicted of the murder of a man called Ronald Hauser, a man from Livingston County in Michigan. And all I'll say is, the more that I started digging into Livingston County, the stranger things I began to uncover.
2: No, no, I, don't I don't know if she wants to get involved and stir a bunch of crap up again. But I'll give her that message.
3: I very much appreciate you calling me back. Thank you. That was her. That was definitely her. Next time, on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a mash pumpkin production. Hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.
1: Imagine the